Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Hello and welcome. I am really, really excited to welcome Amelia Vicky here to the podcast. She is a neuromusculoskeletal medicine and osteopathic manipulative medicine physician who is also a founder of This Osteopathic Life and a coach and a leader doing really amazing things in the field of medicine. Welcome, Amelia. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thanks. So you have done some really awesome things so far in your career. Where has imposter syndrome come up for you the most? You know, the fancy thing about imposter syndrome is it comes up repeatedly. You yes. Know, it seems like something <laughs> we might get over, but it's definitely recurring. And I would say I could see it at each stage of the game for me. You know, so in medical school, I was kind of a really strong starter. And then it was kind of like, when's the shoe going to drop? You know, and then there were some hard moments there when I'd look around and think, do I really belong here? You know, it's kind of the cream of the crop. When you're in med school, you are usually the top of your class. And then you get put into a bucket with everybody who is the top of their class. And then you're thinking, how does this work now? And then I can think about it in residency. Same thing. I was kind of strong. I was identified as a leader early on. But then as we went into some of the clinical realm, it wasn't quite a match for me. And I thought the same thing. You know, I don't think I know what I'm doing. I think I'm in the wrong place. And I even took that to my director of medical education at the time. I said, you know, I think I might have made a, a misjudgment here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the exit track. And thankfully, he could see through, right? He'd been through that a number of times and helped encourage me in. And then even as an attending, you know, I, I assumed a leadership role from the beginning. That seems to be a trend for me and would take on a lot of responsibility. And then almost feel like I was crushing under the pressure of it. You know, it's like I took all these things on. Can I really deliver? I think that's a question that comes up for me a lot. And thankfully, I've learned to hear it sooner and talk myself through it. But it definitely is recurring repeatedly in my career. Yeah, I, th- I love what you just said about how you you were kind of, it's almost like a passive thing how you just were assumed the role of a leader, but clearly you have some qualities that make you a leader. Have you been able to kind of over time merge the idea that other people see you as a leader and that you are a leader? Definitely. And I would say even much more recently, thankfully through coaching, my own coach Mm -hmm. has helped me take ownership of that role. And I really love Abby Wambach. And if you read her book, and she talks about right? Leading from the front and leading from the bench. And I've seen that emerge for me over the years, like in athletics, you know, I played all kinds of sports. I wasn't always the most naturally talented, but I would work hard, you know, and I would stay extra and I would encourage people. And so that spoke to me in leadership that you didn't have to be the all-star and to be able to demonstrate leadership skills and the same throughout. You know, I was a good student, but maybe not always the best student, but I was willing to stay and show up. And I really think encouraging others is the leadership characteristic that stands out most for me. As I have looked at it more recently, and it really ties into osteopathic medicine, that we have the greatness within us, right? And everybody does. We have our health within us. And helping people to see that, I think, is really the strongest characteristic of leadership that I portray. And that one I can own pretty well, because it's outward, right? It's helping others to be great. And so that's a space that allows me to say, okay, I'm comfortable being a leader because it means I get to help other people step into their amazing selves. And to do that, it really requires me to own the things that I'm good at. Yeah. This has been a recurring theme uh, among lots of women who have come on the podcast is they find it's easier to 
accept their trait, their good qualities and, and give their gifts when they're thinking about others and how they can contribute. And I think that's so true for physicians in general, where we just want to serve people and it can really help to kind of get you out of your own way to focus on these are traits that I have that I'm giving to others. And it sounds like that's been something that you've been using throughout your career. Definitely. And it's really helped me in leadership because for a while there was almost a sense of leadership scarcity, you know? So if you're being a leader, are you taking it up from someone else? And the answer is no, because when you show up in that way, it actually encourages other people to be leaders in their own life or in Mm -hmm. their own community or in their own practice or in their own medical setting. And so I think that has really helped me to remember the abundance mindset that applies there too, you know, because I was able to adapt it in other situations, but in leadership, because we often see that pyramid, right? And we talk about that with women in medicine, that there is attrition and women mm-hmm. aren't in leadership as we get farther kind of up the ladder. And so it naturally looks more scarce, right? There are fewer CEO positions, for example, but at the same time, there are many ways to lead. And so stepping into that role doesn't have to eliminate any possibility for someone else. And that's been helpful to, for me to wrap my head around that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And something that came up for me recently, too, because I think in medicine, and I'm not an academic medicine, but I think just by nature of going through residency, there's this idea that there are only there's a finite number of leaders, leadership positions in the C-suite or program directors or that kind of thing. And it takes the emphasis off emerging as a leader to your colleagues or to your patients or to small groups within your, you know, family life. And I think that if we can kind of shift the focus to say, just as if just as a physician, you're a leader, really, and what kind of characteristics can you cultivate, whether or not you want to pursue a formal leadership role? Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think that helps because you think if I can't make it to this point, I'm not a leader, right? Mm -hmm. But to be able to say anywhere I am, I can inhabit those roles and demonstrate them to people. And then right, and then it may be more likely if we stand in that space and act as a leader wherever we are, that there is more possibility, right, to be actually taken up into those ranks. And hopefully, right, with women in medicine, we move in that direction. But I think knowing that we can do it wherever we are is such a helpful starting place. And I want to make sure and also be rewarded appropriately. You know, we talk about kind of pay imbalance. And certainly we are altruistic as physicians and we want to help and we want to lead graciously. But there is that flipping point, you know, the turning Mm -hmm. point when it becomes almost a contributor to burnout. And so yes, right, lead where you can, out of example, and stand up for yourself and the value that you're contributing, and learning to say, okay, and now, right, this is worth compensation or time or whatever way you can be, be rewarded for that. I agree. And I think it's so fortunate that there are women like you, who are such good role models for that, because I think that there aren't that many still that are that are kind of towing the line of I'm going to be a gracious leader and give of myself, but also demand what I'm worth. And, and, and then really being a good example of that for other younger generations. Absolutely. And it definitely is a constant mindset management, you know, cause you think, Oh, what if they don't pay me? And then you can say, well, mm-hmm. then I can stop doing, it. I can hold my boundary and find the space where my leadership is valued appropriately. And I'm totally for philanthropy. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's appropriate and worthy and right and is one of my favorite words Mm -hmm. and so there's ways to do both right for business to be good for the world and even in the non-medical world i look to brands like patagonia where they've made that a conscious part of their business model to say yes you know we're for profit and by being for profit we can actually support 
you know, the things that are important to us on a, on a broader scale. And that's definitely been a lot of work to get to, you know, it's a lot of money mindset management mm-hmm. that goes into it. And there are some amazing women physician leaders, you know, Dr. Linda Street is a master negotiator and she's helped me yeah. in that realm to say, here is how to have the language to show up and say, I'm worth this. And that's what I expect. And that's all I'll accept. Yeah. And I think, you know, that takes some, a good balance of courage and authenticity and really working with the fear of what if they don't accept that and realizing that that has nothing to do with your value or your worth. And Mm -hmm. only you can define that for yourself, no matter what the response is on the other side. Absolutely. That's so powerful. And the hundred percent worthiness is a concept I teach with all my students and residents and physicians with whom I work where that's intact, right? No matter what happens externally, you can stand in that and you can look for whatever reimbursement. And there are ways to get creative, right? We don't have to just get paid in dollars or Mm -hmm. dollars in exchange for time. There are ways to get creative and work with people, but absolutely demonstrating the value and knowing, again, playing to that you're better at it if you help others, that Mm -hmm. you're paving the way. You're setting a precedent. And the more we set the precedent to just do things without any compensation, that's what's going to be expected of the people who come after us. And so by standing up for that, we're actually helping others going forward. Absolutely. So when did you get into more of the coaching role outside of um, like clinical practice? What I realized in coaching, so I started formal training just this year. And it was one of those things. It happened in March, you know, and of course, Mm -hmm. like this is what was planned when I didn't even know I was planning it. But at the first class I was in in coaching, I remember sitting there and just thinking, oh, I've been coaching this whole time. Yeah. Because for me in medicine and in NMM, OMM, which I chose all the you know, syllables for that one, yeah. it's about helping patients see that they have the answers, like their health is still there. And most people would come to me with pain and they'd want me to do manipulation to fix them. And I would always come back to, well, no, you can fix you, right? And you're not even broken. You know, you have the answers. Your, your health is accessible to you. And coaching kind of allowed me to say, okay, I have permission to speak to people in that way. Because the expectation in coaching is not to give directives and advice. It's to hold space for people to find their own answers. And so it felt like this arrival, you know, Mm -hmm. of in this merging of my world. So I really moved in that way. And I've had this vision with this osteopathic life. It's subtext is for the health of all things, which is pretty vague, but also all encompassing. And coaching has given me the tool to really bring that into action. And mm-hmm. I've done that with students and with physicians, and I'm looking more toward institutions. How can we bring this on a broader scale to different mm-hmm. houses of medicine? And it's really been an inspiring move and makes me feel like I'm practicing medicine in the way I always envisioned. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I tried to jump ship back as an intern, I recognized it wasn't because I was in the wrong place. I just understood medicine in a different way. And now I feel like I'm in a space where I can actually practice it on this broad scale. And Mm -hmm. that feels more congruent for me. Yeah, absolutely. And so with your work, what you do with students and other physicians, how often does, does imposter syndrome or these feelings of, you know, I'm a fraud come up for you and with your, you know, the people you work with, with the participants pretty frequently. And again, it's, there's no immune stage of training. You know, I have students at all four years of school, working with residents, working with physicians who are one year out, five years out, 20 years out, and it's still comes up. And I think some of it is we have this expectation that we should know everything, right? That's what it is. And we're supposed to get these scores on tests. And there's one right way to do things. And there's all this information that we should have mastery of. And it's really impossible, right? And there are yeah. no singular answers, because patients are you know not the same. And we can use 
studies to help with foundation. And so I think coming to that space when we've moved through, you know, taking exams our whole lives and then coming to the real worlds of clinical medicine where there aren't clear answers, it's kind of a culture shock, right? It's yeah. a different way of being and accepting that you're going to not know sometimes, right? And doing your best is okay. And asking for help is okay. And there's certain specialties that lend themselves to that maybe more friendly than others. And so coaching that with clients at all stages of training has been really powerful for them to see, oh, it's okay. It's okay not to know. It's okay to figure it out. It's okay to get it wrong. Sometimes it might not be ideal, but that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. I think I I shared with you briefly before we started is is that I have this dream. If I could bring like um, this idea of like, what is imposter syndrome and self-coaching to medical schools around the country? Like that would, that's like my big dream. So, and I think it's, you know, it's because it's so useful to know that it's that this exists number one as a student and number two that every you look around your colleagues all feel the same way because there's this underlying secrecy of it all like you think you're the only one who feels inadequate and there does need to be a shift I think from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset that really should happen in medical school and into residency where you can't let a mistake or a failure break you because that's how you 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 just can't have a uh, sustainable career in medicine that way with that mindset. Definitely. And the amazing thing has been in the group coaching setting. And we do a balance of both. We teach, we do one-on-ones, we do group coaching. But group coaching, in my assessment, has the most power because they hear each other directly say it. And you hear yourself, right? You hear yourself echoed in what's been said. And you can, as we've noted, always help somebody else better than you can help yourself. So they can give the advice, you know, to their colleague. And at the same time, be hearing it. Oh, yeah, I could be telling this to me too, right? So Mm -hmm. we can practice it in that new way. And absolutely, if we can start in medical school, and it's such a unique time, because they've had all this experience, like I said, we bring, you know, the top of the class Mm -hmm. together. But then we put them into a certain model, right? And they have to learn a certain way and do a certain thing, and almost forget about all those experiences. If you think about what got you into medical school, it wasn't the grades, really, it was all this, you know, you traveled, and you taught, and you were in these clubs, and you were active. And then to kind of narrow that down in medical school, to me, is such a shame. And if we Mm -hmm. could embrace that and say, no, actually, that's what's going to help you here, right? Bring that excellence. And if they can remember that, remember those things you were excellent for that maybe had nothing to do directly with medicine, but of course, they all support medicine as this human interaction. I think that would be a really great way to leverage the ability to reduce imposter syndrome to say you've already been great, right? Just like Mm -hmm. your worthiness is intact, you've proven excellence. And you're just going to adapt it into this, you can take that with you into this new world of medical training. Yeah. And I think, so do you find that students that you work with have a hard time like owning their, owning their presence in medical school? Like I think for me, especially that it felt like a mistake for a long time, that typical imposter syndrome you got is you, you you got lucky or they made mm-hmm. a mistake. And Definitely. how do you work with students with that? Yes. And I look at two arms. We always say, can you own your successes? and your challenges mm-hmm. and it's interesting because there are certain people who have a harder time with one of those and what comes up more often is a hard time owning successes you know we yeah. might think it's failures that are challenging for us and we can try to ignore those but at the same time it's much harder often for them to really say what it is that they were successful and own it as theirs yeah you know and like that for me with leadership it took time to get there and so having people say i'm really good at this or i did this i achieved this and that's good, right? I can, it's okay to own that. 
I think is a really strong place to start, but it surprises me and less so now because it's happening more and more frequently that that's one of the harder things to do, even than the failures. And perhaps because the failures, sometimes they might just take themselves out of the game, right? They might just say, I'm done now. But learning to own success and from the osteopathic model, that's focusing on the health, right? Mm -hmm. So say, what are you good at? Not ignoring failures and not strengthening those, but take some time to give yourself credit for what it is that you're actually doing well. I love that. And um, do you, have you found that women have a harder time owning their successes because of a concern over, over being overly confident or seen as arrogant or bragging? Absolutely. And that spectrum is when we talk about a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. the difference between confidence and arrogance and the idea that confidence is a feeling, right? And in coaching, you know, our feelings come from our thoughts and so that you can think yourself confident in an interesting construct. And I don't want to generalize or stereotype, but we can think of a person, right? Who has no problem with confidence, right? Regardless of what past experience has happened. And that could go toward arrogance and be dangerous in medicine, right? When Mm -hmm. we're, you know, overly confident and practicing outside the scope of our skill sets and experience. But at the same time, we can draw confidence up from those past experiences, even if they're unrelated. You know, so if you think about the time you felt the most confident in a, whatever setting it was, it might be, you know, teaching kids in Sunday school, whatever maybe was your strong suit. Mm-hmm. Notice what you were thinking in that time. And then you can think that thought anytime and bring that feeling up and you step into a situation differently. You know, mm-hmm. more recently, in this new setting, right, of how school is being administered because of yeah. COVID and requirements for physical distancing, it's strange, right? There's no precedent for how we're interacting. And so helping students see that they can think themselves confident and that that doesn't mean that it's inappropriate, undeserved, or arrogant has been really powerful. And mm-hmm. I think there is that tendency for women particularly to think, oh, if I show up that way, I'm arrogant, you mm-hmm. know, and helping them see that really it's not. There's a, there's a pretty good distinction between those two. Yeah. This is a podcast recently that I did recently about the confidence versus arrogance thing, because it's it's something that I struggled with. And I really kind of had to define like what confidence meant to me. And I think that exactly like you said, like it's going to mean something different to everybody and there's different ways you can come across as confidence. So I kind of settled it on this, this humble confidence, which I feel very comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that makes me feel like it's very separate from arrogance. So I think that's a really good point of asking each individual, what makes you feel confident instead of this is what confidence looks like as a blanket statement for everyone. Definitely. Cause we all show up differently with each feeling, right. Mm-hmm. And depending on how extroverted we are and, And having that ability to define it for yourself and allow it to be adequate, you know, so I don't have to look how that person looks when they're confident. I can just look and feel how I do for that. Mm -hmm. And that's really freeing to operate from that space. Yeah. So how has coaching benefited you when it comes to feelings of inadequacy or, or feeling like an imposter? It definitely helps me to anticipate them. So I'm not surprised by it anymore mm-hmm. and because it doesn't go away, like I said, but it's not like when it comes up, everything ends, you know, and I've had these days where it's usually in the same day, you know, I have all these wins, you know, I'll get mm-hmm. these accolades, I'll have a new opportunity. And then in a minute, you know, one thing happens and you think, well, I had a good run, you know, I'm just yeah, going yeah. to go now. <laughs> yes. But now I see it and I don't, I don't actually, you know, want to throw in the towel. I say, oh yeah, like that's, that's the thought that I'm having right now. And so I can catch it quicker and I'm not surprised that it's happening. You know, it's kind of like a friend comes by, you're like, all right, you're here today, you know, that's okay. And I don't have to have it leave, 
yeah. right away, you know, so I can also listen to it because maybe it can be instructive. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is a sign. Okay. Am I taking on too much? You know, do I need other support for me? Delegation is a weak point for me. That's my thought about it, but it's a place I can work on strengthening. And so I often listen to it to say, well, what is it telling me? Right. Cause my brain chose that thought for a reason. And so is there something actually useful and functional I can take from this and then let go of the parts that are going to make me say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to go now. And that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fun the most helpful part of coaching is identifying it and moving through it more quickly and noticing that it could actually be beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. When it's temporary, because now I know I'm not stuck with it. And so when yeah. it is there, I can listen to what it has to say and not allow it to take me totally off course. Yeah, I think that that's been the biggest shift for me when it comes to, to thought work and, and coaching in general is you're not like you're in charge of your own thoughts now and not the other way around. Like for me, it was like, I was for sure a victim of that. And when you can make that shift and realize that the thoughts that you have are completely within your control, then it changes everything not just imposter syndrome, but really everything in your life. And so I can't um, echo what you said enough because it's really, it's really valuable practice for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's been useful for me. And helpful as I'm working with clients, because when we start to allow all feelings, we allow all feelings. Mm -hmm. And we think, I'm going to learn just to get the good ones, you know, but it's really having them all. And that's a good thing. And I was definitely guilty of this. It's my tea, right? Initially that I was, you know, I want to be calm and kind and peaceful. Mm -hmm. And that's great, but it's not reality, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. not the full human experience. And so letting all of the feelings in has been a really big shift for me and letting them all in because they're part of me, right? It's like mm-hmm. when we say all feelings are welcome, it means all of you is welcome here. And there's no bad part, right? right? And it's been helpful as a parent with my kids too. That, okay, there's nothing wrong with anger. There are certainly things that come out of anger that we might want to manage differently. Mm-hmm. But being able to just say, okay, right, all feelings are okay. And that's also taking the pressure off of me and trying to be, you know, one way kind, calm, peaceful, yeah. you know, it means all of those can be part of me and probably as a leader are helpful, like you want to have mm-hmm capacity to hold that whole range of emotions. Yeah. Nothing has gone wrong, right? I like to tell myself mm-hmm. that like this is okay. Nothing has gone wrong. Right. Um so what's what do you find the most common piece of advice that you're giving to um those that you work with? The 100% worthiness is mm-hmm. one of the big, big topics that comes up and that's when we do have to reiterate because it seems yeah. unbelievable. It's like no worthiness comes with my scores and, you know, mm-hmm. with these degrees. And so it's like, nope, those are the ands. Those are beyond that inner sphere of worthiness. And then the other that I talk about a lot is reuniting power and responsibility, especially with physicians. Mm-hmm. And what I see with that is we have been given responsibility for things totally beyond our control, right? Outcomes and cases when there are many, many variables that simply can't be controlled by anybody, you know, let alone one person. And so reuniting that and saying, what do you actually control? And sometimes mm-hmm. we're not being responsible for anything like our thoughts and feelings, right? Mm-hmm. But other times we've been stretched, you know, to be responsible for things that just aren't appropriate. And so we can rein that back in and that does start at the individual level and hopefully then moves out to the systemic level of saying, oh yeah, that's not really for you to control because when we do that, the power goes up, right? When we actually yeah. take responsibility for things we can truly control, our power just is exponentially increased. And so that's what I really bring to my sessions most frequently. I love that. I think that's really, really useful and worth repeating probably several times Mm -hmm. (laughs) before we really get it. Well, thank you so much um, for your time. It's been really great talking to you and I can't wait to see what you have in store for us in the future.
Thank you. I appreciate being here. This was a lot of fun.